drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5. Six. Six of Drive-By Cinema. We checked and double-checked. I still got it wrong, Paul. Well, what can I tell you? Well, I was going to... Well, here's my co-host, Rich. I was going to say something very nice about you. Oh, wait. Uh, that I was diligent well, and... Well, last week I said it's great because I can announce this one because it's only counted to five. And this week I was going to say, of uh, course, Richard can You can count. no longer count that high. I can count that high, but Richard can count higher. Because you know, his maths is much better. Why is his maths much better? Well, he knows to use his toes as well. <laughs> Anyway, but Listen, can't do that. It's a catalogue of errors lately. I don't know why, but having pulled you up last week for <gasps> your poor audio, I realised that I'd made a mistake oh. by... Oh, I think I said this, didn't I? By I wearing a- nothing but underpants at your large bay window. Yeah, I know, but we all do that on occasion. <laughs> I put... Bay window. I put two... You don't have a bay window? No. I've been watching repeats of Sorry with Ronnie Corbett, that's probably why. I put two episodes of season four out with season three as the but I fixed that now. Duly correct. Oh, but worse, worse, last week's episode I accidentally published for about an hour or something, I don't know. Our outtakes, oh gosh. No, no, a 30 (laughs) second clip from the whole episode. And one person, and I don't know who you are, I am very sorry, downloaded it, other than me. Had to witness that, okay. Right, somewhere in the middle of last week or the week before, we didn't know the name for the cupboard that takes away gas <gasps> in a chemistry lab. It is, of course, fume cupboard. Fume cupboard. Uh, yes. I was trying to get away from the word gas chamber for quite some time, you see, so. <laughs> no. Well, that was a wise thing to avoid. Hmm. What else did I get wrong recently? Nothing, I don't think. I I replaced, obviously, the published episode. Thankfully, thanks to your terrible audio on our most popular episode for months, our audience has tailed right off now again. So all those people who were listening to Upgrade decided that they've got better things to do with it. Why didn't they come in for Upgrade and Upgrade alone? (laughs) I don't know, Paul. But whoever you are, please stick with us, because we've got something to say about most things... Yes. Not having any business saying that. My name is Rick. This is my car as Paul. We are the podcast where we listen to podcasts where we watch (laughs) movies so you don't have to. We can listen to podcasts too. The third season of Alan Partridge's podcast. Have you? Apparently if you don't like if you don't like Alan and you don't like gardening, you won't like it, so don't listen. Gardening. <laughs> That's his advert for it. It's like, oh, my name's Alan. It's a podcast about gardening. If you don't like podcast gardening on me, don't bother because you won't like it. He doesn't do all that much gardening in the podcast, to be fair. Uh, but he is he is very funny. He started putting adverts in his podcasts, and they're amazing. <laughs> is he voicing the adverts himself? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of podcasters do. You know. Original name uh, of soap opera coming from that from from that reason, isn't it? When they used to advertise soap. Hey, Paul, mm. here's a quick... Do you think you've learned anything about filmmaking no, and movies? No, you've asked me this before. Do I think I can make I know, my own movie having reviewed lots of, lots of movies religiously? Different for, question. Different I know, question. similar though. On the same tangent, I agree. Have I learned anything? No, no, I don't think I have. It all comes down to how you learn. Ah, you're a visual learner. No, it's not exactly. that. I don't, I don't... I'm not good at taking... Notes. Can what I would say is I'm not good at extra, extricating detail from complexity, formulating understanding from that. I like to... I don't know what kind of learn I am, but I'm not good at that. And I don't know, Paul. I think you're good at making wild generalisations, aren't you? Like about you. yourself there, for instance. Well, thank you very much. No, listen. Here's that slap that in I... the face didn't hurt, if you want to everybody. <laughs> here's something. Well, look. We've learned about the Italian giallo movie genre. Yeah, okay. There you go. You can tick that off your, your chart. We know a little bit about... That's not a lot footage. for three years of movie review, though, is it, really? Found footage. We've done quite a few found footage pieces. Sure, and uh, re- realism in cinema. I went down a rabbit hole, but I can't remember anything of what I discovered. Cinema Verite, I studied and how it relates to found footage movies. I've forgotten all that, so it's disappointing. Sorry, Rich, go on. 
you no, found well, I was what? trying to figure out what what was so interesting about found footage. And I don't know. You had a bee in your bonnet for some while about it. Well, I think it's just that it's a different way of filming things. And I saw a YouTube video which explained what modern Hollywood movies, most movies, what school they belong to, what technique they use these days. And it's called, it's been described as intensified continuity. And it has four hallmarks. This Do you mean the Hill Street Blues uh, sort of model adapted and I evolved? I don't know. Here's a, an admission. I didn't really watch very much Hill Street Blues, so I can't tell you. But you can tell me if Hill Street Blues fits these four mm-hmm. key criteria for intensified continuity. Go on. One is that it cuts really fast. Yeah. So rather than lingering or having locked off shots with maybe minutes going past, it'll be only a few seconds before one shot is cut to the next. HSB strike one. (laughs) Okay. The second hallmark of intensified continuity is the close-up is king. So you're constantly seeing just one shot of one actor's face really close up. And quite often... Quite often they'll zoom in on the actor's face while talking to somebody else. Talking, yeah, very common. So a conversation like this conversation between you and me in a Hollywood film at the moment, it would be done your face perhaps with my shoulder, and then a reverse shot of my face with your shoulder, and it would flip between the two as we as as the dialogue progresses. So to recap, because I have trouble taking things on board whilst talking about them. One is music video cuttery. Two is the close-up. One-sided close-ups, which is a big close-up divergence from modern filmmaking, isn't it? Classical modern filmmaking. The third hallmark is short. No, sorry, long lenses rather than short lenses. What, what does that mean? Well, in in olden days when they started making films they'd quite often have scenes that were filmed with quite a wide angle taking in something that resembles i suppose like a stage of a play mm-hmm. you know a, a scene a room quite wide and have several characters on it at yeah. the same time whereas in modern filmmaking usually they have a long lens as a telephoto lens they may have the camera quite far away ah. but zoomed right in and the effect of that, because of the depth of field, is that the background will be blurred. And so, apart from the close-up, you're also forced to focus in on one thing. So I that's see. another key element, is your focus It's one thing at a time. Now, because of the fast cutting, it's not like it's simplifying things, it's just serialising them. Rather than having things in parallel on screen at once, it would be cut, cut, cut to lots of different things. Okay. What's the fourth thing, though? The fourth thing is moving the camera. Okay, Hill Street Blues strike two. Often, even when it's not really necessary to Hill Street Blue, yeah. Some of this is a direct descendant of those changes that Hill Street Blues brought in. Do you remember stuff like 30-something? Do you remember 30-something and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. All kind of bounced off the back. Yeah, 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 shaky cam. All bounced off the back of Hill Street Blues, didn't it? But the frequent cutting was something that Hill Street Blues was was very, very... It was, a, it was a distinct departure from what had come before, basically. Now, there's nothing wrong with these techniques. But what it tends to do is... Hackney, it tends though, to, it? it tends to emphasise, like, the action. It's intensified. Everything is intensified. Mm-hmm. It intensifies the low moments as well. Like in old-fashioned filmmaking, they would obviously use close-ups, but they would do it at very emotionally important moments or when a key line was being delivered. Mm -hmm. And at other times, it was more like a stage play. Now, partly that's presumably down to the cameras, and presumably they weren't necessarily that easy to move around fluidly. And as we've developed cranes and dolly shots and steady cams, obviously directors have got more and more excited about moving the camera around and zooming in for a close-up mm-hmm. stuff like that but it's a balance isn't it and sometimes a more stagey kind of cinematography 
where the camera is still and you're watching the actors act with their full bodies might might be more appropriate and impactful. And also, having a contrast between the action scenes and the non-action scenes might help the pacing of some That's movies. That's a good observation. How many cameras would you normally have on set? Like one pan oh, and one. two? Usually one. Not, it, not three? In movie making. I mean, it's not unheard of, but in movie making, they usually do it in one camera, don't they? And so if you're going to have close-ups, then you'll retake the dialogue. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. Well, um, in a TV studio, you'd have three cameras, wouldn't you? You know, you'd have two constantly trained. TV on the two. studios are different, yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, movie and TV are merging, aren't they? So, mm. as, as cameras become digital, maybe it's easier for them to do that as well. Sitcoms are always multi-camera affairs to make sure they capture the right beats, the comedy beats. I guess previously, you know, we're talking 60, 70, 80 years ago, you wouldn't want three cameras because it would just be a terrible waste of film, wouldn't it? Film, exactly, yeah. yeah. And they're big and they're noisy as well and, and you need a, a cameraman and a focus puller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually one camera, I think. Pull. Uh, anyway, this so, is all very... Uh, so you were saying, therefore, found footage, your fascination with this is underpinned well, found by these footage, changes. They can't, they can't do these things, can they? The, the Well, they can shake the camera, can't they? They can shake the camera, yeah. And, but, you know, they can't set up sort of these kind of flash shots that, that are very artistic. They can't. Well, they, they don't usually zoom in on one character's no, know, face in no. a cinematographic way. But they? in every found footage movie, there's that moment where the camera either goes underwater or disappears into a handbag or, or suddenly... We can't quite see what's going on, but we can hear what's going on. It's supposed to be terrifying sure, yeah, and yeah. exciting. So there's a, that one technique there, isn't there, at least? It's a development out of intensified continuity, but again, it's different enough, I think. It's interesting, anyway. Let, let's maybe apply all of this knowledge to a new movie this week, Paul. How about that? Yes, after the music. Uh, after this music. All my friends hate me. Yeah, it's the name of the. It's the name. Of yeah, the movie, exactly. There's therapy in watching this movie. <laughs> if you find yourself shunned by the clique that you once grew up in, 2021, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, recent. Absolutely. Yeah. Released. Uh, sorry, May production. 21. Released 22. All my friends hate me. British. It is a British production. Build of comedy directed. horror. I'm not, not sure. sure yeah. It checks on yeah. those boxes very hard. <laughs> or very often. It does check in with comedy sometimes. I wouldn't really say it ever heads towards horror. Maybe tension and thrill. Yes. Thriller. I think if you were a horror fan going you'd, to see this film. You'd be solely disappointed. You would be disappointed. Directed by Andrew Gaynord. Now, he, I think, cut his teeth on like BBC Three comedy shows like Stathlet. Let's Flats, which is unpronounceably difficult to say. Like what? Staff Let Flats. Staff Let's Flats. It's about this like Greek guy who's a an estate agent, or Rialta, as they might say. I see. Interesting, I think, that it's got a British comedy director heritage to it because it comes across very much like something you would see it's like play for the day or yeah, it didn't really feel like a film. No, it doesn't. It, it feels like a long-form TV episode or something. TV drama, I think, is the closest. How they used to make them, 70 minutes long, is kind of how it felt to me. It's, it's trying to be dark humour, isn't it? Yeah. But it's so dark. It's, it's sort of a cringe fest, right? Is it, it intentionally sort of cringe-inducing or not? I think so, yeah. I think that's the purpose behind it. Yeah. How do they do it? We have to explain, don't we? We're going to focus on this guy, Pete. He's going to what turns out to be his own birthday party. 31st birthday party, yeah. yeah. Not particularly special, is it? No, but he's back from being a refugee volunteer or something. In Lebanon, yeah. Oh, okay. So maybe harrowing things that he did see. He's going to see all these university friends who presumably are all 31 as well. So as you Mm -hmm. say, I guess it's more a homecoming for him. That happens to be on his birthday. That would make more sense, yeah. Now, he is going on his own initially down to Devon. I don't know where they live, but it seems to be a drive. And he's telling his 
girlfriend who doesn't know any of his university friends about what's happening, I think, at the start, isn't he? He's, like, briefing her. Yeah, he's kind of like, okay, these people are turnip toffs. They're posh sets, aren't they, of university? I mean, he must be posh as well. He is posh, but I think he's middle-class posh, yeah. He's been away to Lebanon and has got woke, I suppose. Is that that the idea? You know, this... uh, That, I thought, was the clumsiest part of the movie. His whole backstory, and they equated working as an adult with refugees as being the same as going for a gap year kind of thing. <laughs> I like, uh, yeah, uh, my gap year. I, I, I guess this would work if you're going to assume that his, his university coterie haven't grown up, and therefore he's kind of intruded in their party world by talking about things that aren't party-esque, yeah. But he only talks about working abroad about three times. The other thing that he does at the start with his girlfriend is he talks slightly too much about one of his old friends called Claire. Yeah. said that very northern, didn't I? Claire. His girlfriend's northern anyway, isn't she? She's northern, yeah, thankfully. Lisa's one of them. His girlfriend, Sophia, gets the idea that he had a bit of a thing for Claire or she's got a bit of a thing for him or one way or the other. Apparently, it's his ex-girlfriend on the nod, Cameron. We learn that later, don't we? Yeah. He's on the phone to his girlfriend while he's driving. The law is quite straightforward. You can't hold your phone and use it to do anything. He's driving down to Devon anyway in his car, and the title card comes up during this, but we see him driving through all the little country roads. Very narrow roads, isn't it, in Cornwall and Devon? Yes, yes, very much so. You always meet a tractor head-on, oncoming. And have to reverse. Little, there's little lay-by passing points, aren't there, I guess they're called. You've got to reverse three quarters of a mile to get to a passing point. It's very stressful. But he has to stop for a pee, and there's nowhere appropriate to go other than in the, the wild, as it were, in a field, actually. As he does so, a significant thing happens, Paul, which comes up later in the film. He hears some rave music. He sees a dog oh. tied up to the fence, and it's whining because it's tied up. And he approaches the dog gingerly. I mean, I, I would be very careful. It looks like the kind of dog that has, like, killed seven kids in the last two years or whatever. XL, what are they called? XL. XL bullies, aren't they? XL bully or something like that, yeah. Everyone got a dog, didn't they, during lockdown? And <laughs> 60% of those people don't know what to do with a dog now. Like, if you chip your dog and, and people feed it, can they just take the chip out? I guess it's just injected under the, the skin in the neck, isn't it? I don't know. Do you remember when dogs were getting nicked at the beginning of lockdown? Yeah. yeah, yeah Why yeah. couldn't you just track it with your, with your tracker? <laughs> okay. Is it not that kind no, of chip? No. Oh. No, you have to be close to the chip, like a chip and pin car. Oh, right. It's not like they can look down with a satellite <laughs> and see where all the Oh, it's not like are. James Bond kind of stuff where they're chipped It's forever. a great idea, though, Paul, maybe. Maybe that's what we should do. We can track all the dogs. <laughs> not bad, eh? That's what someone suggested doing that with the Irish people, didn't they? So they could tell when they crossed the border. So that we they did the Good Friday Agreement or something. Someone, one of the Tory MPs did, yeah. <laughs> okay. We electronically tag them all. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so nervous Pete, anxious yeah. Pete, avoids the dog, jumps over the fence, goes for a waz. Is that right? Well, it's tied up near a car, a car parked in a farmer's field, covered in... It's covered in shit. Okay. That's my only memory of this moment. So it's a very curious thing, isn't it? This car covered in shit. He kind of approaches the car to Gingery. figure out what's going on. Yeah. And he's trying, I think he wants to say, listen, your dog's whining. Come and see to your dog. And as he's doing that, peering in through the window, suddenly the, the back door opens... And a guy who I think was like wrapped up in a duvet or something jumps out. Oh, that's what it is. I thought there was some sort of tussle or struggle going on behind two people back there or something. It seems to be on, the, on their own. He falls over, though, the minute they jump out of the back of the car, giving Pete time to run away because yes. this person is yelling incoherently. No, this doesn't really happen. If you watch people being chased by cows, the cows never fall over. It's always the person in terror being chased Nearly always in a field will fall over. So. Hey, cows are dangerous. Yeah. Shouldn't go into field. Never turn your back on a cow, even if you're a farmer. All oh, right, we're giving farming advice. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he manages to get back to his car. He drives away. 
he's lost those in the, in the twisting, winding roads of Devon. Yeah. And he stops to get his bearing and to try and check mm. his, his telephone. Conveniently, there's a local turns up, and, you know, as he winds down the window, yeah. And at this point, I thought, wow, because I thought this was really scary. Deep, piercing, sort of blue, almost sort of zombie-like eyes. Old man with leathery skin, but with a really intrusive, penetrating stare and a, a kind of slightly threatening demeanour. Helps him, eventually. Uh, played by Christopher Fairbank. I thought, wow, this is going to be so, 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 so scary. I was ramping myself up for a really, really, really gory, terrifying horror movie. I mean, it's got, yeah, folk horror kind of vibes, hasn't it, mm. at this point? He's from the town, out in the country, he doesn't know what he's I doing. I thought it was ramping up quite nicely at this point, I have to be honest. But this guy approaches him. He says he's kind of lost. He's looking for Cleve Hill Manor. It's his birthday party, he says. Do you know where it is? Do you know where it is? Yeah. It says, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Can you tell me where it is? Yeah, I can. <laughs> he's yanking his chain, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. He's clearly like a gamekeeper or whatever they are. Although Pete doesn't realise he's the gamekeeper. Weird. He doesn't seem to, no. No. So he gets directions. He arrives at the manor house. He's pulling up with his car blaring dance music. Pete's pulled up in party mode, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. And he, he jumps out, opens the boot, and leaves his car door open with all the music blaring, runs up to the uh, manor house door, and what does he find? It completely open but deserted. There's nobody there, yeah. All his friends. It's a huge, a huge house as well. It's a pile. Yeah. Absolutely. Let, owned yeah. by, as we find out, his friend George. Or his parents, or presumably his inheritance. His family, yeah. Who is quite well portrayed of his social milieu. He looks like the kind of posh guy that runs an art gallery kind of thing. He's dejected, isn't he? He looks around, there's nobody there. Yeah, yeah, he is in, in a funny way, really. But I didn't really understand this dejection. He sits alone in the front room and he starts drinking. <laughs> it dusk dusks, I don't know what the... Whoop. I don't know what the... You can say dawn dawns, you can't really say dusk dusks, can he? The sky falls. His girlfriend texts him while he's sat on the sofa and asks him how it's all going. I didn't see his reply. He kind of lied to her about it, though, didn't he? Yeah, why. yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't want to seem like a loser, does he, sitting alone on his birthday party in, in, in a big house. I think it was two places the house, because I was reflecting on it. Like, I was reflecting on... When we see, like, cowabunga images of uh, rockers giving the old weird 666 sign, a rock-on sign, and sort of doing their head-banging and being loud and maybe being enthusiastic about voluptuous females kind of thing, we kind of think it's kind of outré, sad, and, like, a bit gauche, how they behave. We don't... We haven't... Like, dance music doesn't yet feel like that, does that whole genre... Of overindulgence and no, of, I see what you mean. I see what you're saying. And kind of yeah. over ba- bouncy over enthusiasm. It's seen as sophisticated still, weirdly. But I think when you set it out in the middle of Devon, in Cowpat Devon, it kind of takes on kind of rock excess attributes, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. It'd be like turning up and playing Slade. He wraps himself up in blankets, doesn't he, as he sits on the sofa, as it's getting chilly, presumably, in the evening, uh-huh. in the night. His friends arrive. George, well, Archie comes in first, I think. His friend Archie. George arrives. Claire, who asks him if he was waiting a long time, he says, no, just half an hour and a, and a half. <laughs> Presumably he's been there for a couple of hours at least. If I see. Know. Okay. Right. So he's just very anxious and he doesn't really communicate what he wants to communicate even to friends, does he? Although, are they friends? I mean, they've not seen each other, presumably, for several years. Is that right? That's right, yeah. They claim that they left a note saying that they were down at the pub, which he obviously didn't see. While they're kind of chatting about this and getting to know one another, a guy arrives (laughs) carrying a a goose. Goose. It's alive, isn't it? It's not dead. It's fully alive. Because he kisses it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. He's dancing with it. They explain that they found this guy down at the pub, and he's a real kind of life and soul of the party type, isn't he? In fact, he's quite annoying. He's called Harry, apparently. Now, they, they obviously reminisce about university days and they bring up their nicknames. I may be embarrassing aspects of his behaviour in the past, I'm not sure. 
They rib him about having a more northern accent now he's got a northern girlfriend. Yeah. Which is very annoying because they've all got tough accents. It has to be said, okay. Like I'm not sure where the comedy comes in. Are we supposed to be <laughs> laughing about how unfunny they are? Great question. I don't know who don't we're supposed to sympathise with. I, uh, I th- well, I think we're supposed to, at this point, sympathise with Pete. I mean, but then there's nothing funny about them being singularly unfunny, though, is there? I mean, like, <laughs> everything they say is unironic, tough. This is it. Chatter, isn't it? No one here is really particularly funny. No. Especially Harry, who they all think is hilarious, but I don't find him amusing Harry at all. isn't funny at all, is no, he? He's the, the guy they brought along, this weird guy. He's just not funny. He's kind of like... He's kind of like uh, the people that chase pigeons in the town centre, but without a soapbox or anything, isn't he? <laughs> Pete is feeling, clearly, a bit left out, because they're all merry and drinking. He's been like under a blanket, alone in, in the manor house. Have we introduced hours. Archie? Yeah, he came in with the... Uh, he's, with he's very much Harry Enfield's sort of nice but dim, but with a cocaine, <laughs> cocaine habit, isn't he? Oh. He is. That is well observed. His friends say that they've told Harry how witty Pete is, how funny he is. Yeah, so tell us a story. What have you been up to today? Something was that? Was that how it goes? Some, well, I think more to kind of recapture their interest in it and get back to some of that magic. Perhaps he was used to holding holding court with his friends. He he goes about telling the story about this strange chap that he met. Try and get directions. That's right. Okay, this was quite a funny part of the movie. I thought maybe the one elegantly... It's cringy, though, isn't it? Well, it's, it's great because we feel bad for him, but it's, it is elegantly constructed, at least. He's telling this story about this weird guy who's not really telling him where, where the manor house is. And as he does this, of course, Norman, that chap, is standing in the room behind it. As Pete delivers the punchline, <laughs> and the guy said, I hope to see you soon, and I was thinking, bloody hell, I hope I never see him again, kind of thing. Yeah. And so, have a happy birthday. <laughs> so it was elegantly constructed. Yeah. And it turns out that he's part of the estate of, of excuse me. He's the groundskeeper. Of, of George's, yeah, George's, George's. George's pile. I think so, there was some nuance. Fig, who's now George's wife, who I guess is you knew it with them, she kind of plays the Ari Feast, somebody who's arrived into money and is perhaps enjoying that power quite a lot, but isn't quite so conscious of the behaviour changes that she has or hasn't transitioned with kind of thing. So I thought that was relatively well put across as a character, but unnecessary really in a comedy. She tells Pete that Harry is going to be kipping in his room on the sofa bed. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, so, I mean, Pete is unable to voice any kind of concern. I guess he feels like he's falling back into university days where you're so subsumed by peer pressure that you, you become part of that, that that ugly dynamic of group, don't you? But here at 31, you'd think he'd say, I'm oh, sorry, I'm not doing that. I'll go and stay in a hotel kind of thing. And one of the things that they do reminisce about is they mention uh, another uni- university friend that I think was called Plank. Plank, yeah. A guy who bought a whole wheel of cheese to a party one time. <laughs> Again, not funny. It isn't funny, is it? <laughs> uh, but Pete doesn't seem to recollect this. He has no memory of this. Yeah, yeah. that's right. He goes and takes a bath anyway, and as he's in the bath, yeah. uh, Harry walks into the bathroom with yeah. a towel around him, brushes his teeth at whatever he's doing, and then I think ends up winds up naked. Pete was meanwhile he was trying to make polite conversation as you do when someone naked walks into you while you're having a bath. He's explaining, oh, we're all friends from university. I'm 31. It's my birthday, and he asks him to. Guess how old Harry is. He guesses mid-30s and Harry says, no, I'm 40 or something like that. <laughs> and then he, It's he actually assaults Pete. He describes his oh. cock to him. Oh, yeah, he, he says, describes Pete. at the base, slightly strangled in the middle. Think tapers to a point and then grabs <laughs> it and then sexually assaults him. So, like, I, I, so I think they're not really spotlighting this, but they're saying that Pete doesn't have the voice he should have. I mean, if you've been assaulted by somebody... You ring the police, don't you? I mean, isn't that what happens if you're assaulted, sexually assaulted by a stranger? I mean, <laughs> quite right. You don't go along with these options, do you? So was there a subtext talking about how he's falling back into university dynamics? I don't know. Well, Harry says something like, oh, you know, 
They said you were the shy one. Which yeah. I think really stings Pete, doesn't it? Because I don't think it's the image he has of himself. Yeah. Would you go so so far to say that, you know, Pete is spectrum narcissistic or not? Or just... Or is it just a slightly grievous insult having having your dick grabbed and then being called shy? I don't know. Well, you answer that question differently at the start of the movie to Mm. the end of the movie, don't you? Really, the story of this movie is the story of our greater and deeper understanding of who Pete is. We do see at this point that he's got a set of pills with him in his wash bag. We don't know what they are yet, but we know he's got medication of some kind. In the morning, still stung by Harry's words... He goes downstairs. I think George pulls a whiskey for him. And he's talking about how funny this guy Harry is. That's right. Pete opens up and says, look, I I think I'm about to propose to my girlfriend, Sonia. He's planning to do it when they go away or something next week. George says, for goodness sake, don't tell Claire. She's still got the hearts for you. And you know, of course, apparently a few years ago, she tried to kill herself. Possibly as a result of not getting together with Pete, so... Just be careful. Pete is obviously quite certainly he's not going to do that. And he swears George not to tell her as well. At some point, somebody suggests that Pete would make a good Bond. And Harry gets excited and asks George if he's got any guns. He runs off to get the guns. And Pete is so suspicious about this. So they want to take a Bond picture, like an audition picture, with Pete as James Bond. But Pete is just thinking, no, this madman Harry, he's just assuming that he's using it as a pretext. Harry's using it as a pretext to get his hands on guns. And we're hoping as viewers to, you know, to let the horror movie commence, you know. (laughs) Instead, what we get is Pete smoking outside with Claire. And Claire congratulates him immediately on him about to propose to his girlfriend. Obviously, he's a bit shocked. He says, you know, who told you? Who told you? And immediately, I think he's thinking, oh, Harry must have somehow known and has gone and told Claire. It's paranoia, isn't it, building up about this guy? Yes. Who is a cuckoo, effectively, isn't he? He doesn't know why he's there. He's just a stranger they met at the pub. I mean, it's a good 20 years since I've been in the kind of party situations where you find (laughs) yourself with, like, strangers in an intimate home setting kind of thing. Yes. Like people who've just turned up to an after party. Usually for the reasons of sharing sharing illegal drugs, aren't they? Seems it's the same in this case. I imagine it's the same these days. But kids these days don't drink very much, do they? They don't, no. They do a lot of drugs, though, don't they? No clue. No clue. Like the the canisters. Oh, the party balloon stuff. Yeah. His, His pills have been tampered with. And also, at the same time, he notices that Harry has got some sort of screensaver for his phone that's a, a young little girl. Is that right? He does notice that on Harry's phone. Because that's going to build sees, later, isn't it? He's calling Sonia at one point, And she's explaining that although she's on her way there, she's been delayed because some the- internet engineer is coming to install internet <laughs> in their flat. So she has to wait until he's there. And as he's on the phone to her, he's outside because he's been smoking. He sees in the car park this filthy mud-covered car, the one that he saw in the field field earlier. That's right, yeah. He looks in the back, there's like an old duvet or something in there. And he thinks, immediately thinks, this must be Harry's car. Yeah. Harry must be the guy who he kind of disturbed and angered. And now he's getting his revenge on him by ingratiating himself with all his friends. He's convinced that this is what's happening. Although it doesn't actually make any sense if you think about it, does it? So they're due to go to the local pub, aren't they? Not that night. Now, Pete wants to go to bed early. I see. And he's, as he's on his way to bed, Fee criticises him for his behaviour, claiming, apparently he, in a conversation, he, he claimed that he'd pulled Fee at one point and rubbing Claire's nose in it for the engagement. He goes to bed and Harry comes in much later and wakes him up. Apparently he was messing with those pills and asking if it was Rennie's. <laughs> Bit strange, isn't it? I don't think I would pick up somebody else's medication and assume it was <laughs> it was indigestion pills. So I'm not sure which morning it is, but Archie's pulled an all-nighter. Maybe this night or the night. Of, next night, I'm not quite sure which. 
And Harry seems to be wearing this imposter to be in Pete's mind. This imposter seems to be wearing Pete's clothes. <laughs> and here uh, we get yeah. a glimpse of Pete starting to lose it. He kind of just doesn't so much lash out, but he in front of everybody else accuses Harry of nicking his clothes and grabs him so that you can see the label on the collar. Harry is seen now to be regularly writing things down in a small yeah. spiral bound notepad. Every time Pete does something or says something notable, he, he will write something down in this notepad, fueling his paranoia about this guy. He does accuse him of wearing his hoodie, but it's not, apparently. It is Harry's hoodie. Now, the other so, friends leave for the pub, don't they? Because this is all that happens on the second day. That's it's, right. There's that's karaoke right. at the pub, which Pete doesn't know about. It's just, surprise. It's just after Archie, Tim Nice but Dim, dresses up in a balaclava with a shotgun, and comes right. into uh, Pete's room and scares the bejesus out of him. Now, it's all jump scares, therefore, isn't it? And I was thinking, wait a minute, like, we're 45 minutes in. When is the horror going to arrive? You know? And this is where my buyer's remorse came in with the movie. I was, like, expecting something they'd set up, and it never arrived. What his friends do is, as he's about to get in the Range Rover, yeah. Archie, like, drives away a little bit. And he does that three or four times, until eventually, at the gate, he just drives off down the lane and they all drive to the pub leaving him with Harry to walk there on his own oh sorry he is with Harry though Harry at this point comes out of the manor house letting the door close behind him and latch just as Pete was about to walk back in but Harry goes don't worry I know the way to the pub we can walk it's not that far okay so they've got a tramp through the countryside with somebody that Pete is still fairly cons- concerned might be a countryside mass murderer on the way, Harry is needling him a bit about Claire. Quite effectively, I would say. Yeah. I would say Harry's needling is one of the best aspects of the movie. <laughs> and then Pete straight out asks him about living in a car, which Harry denies. Yeah. Harry asks him about this guy, Plank, and his bad memory. He doesn't seem to remember this guy that they were talking about. Pete loses his temper at this point and says, Go, you're not welcome. This is the point you were hoping for, Paul, wasn't it? When he actually finds his voice. He's finally had enough. Look, you're not welcome here. It's my birthday. Just leave. Just just go. And he sort of stomps off. Harry says, wait a minute. Wrong way. Turn right. <laughs> As he's making his own way there, first of all, he finds a goose. That's been decapitated, yeah. Oh, it's been and it's neck wrung or something. Or something like that. Gutted away. And as he's coming over a hill to where the pub is, the valley where the pub is, he looks to his side, looks to his left, and just coming over a rise is Harry. As he's walking towards him, he pulls an axe out of his coat. Launches himself at him. And Pete obviously dashes as fast as he can. Pete does an impression of the cheese rolling competition that's held (laughs) somewhere down there in the summer. He just he rolls bursts into the pub. And obviously what's happened is all of his mates went to the pub early and fixed it up with balloons and, you know, happy birthday stuff <laughs> for a surprise party. And he's obviously terrified. He runs into the pub going, my God. But Harry comes in after him and explains that they put him up, that, that lot put him up to it to chase him into the pub. <laughs> yes. And they're like, party pooper Pete. God, what a what a negative Norman you are. And he really starts losing it. Uh, his perception that he understands that they all think he's a terrible friend uh, really gets to him, doesn't it? Archie is offering coke around, isn't he? He's getting people to do a hit of coke in the toilet. Pete does. Whilst he's high on coke, he asks George to be his best man. But then later on, we see Archie's really pissed that a lot of coke has gone from the little bag that he had. Mm-hmm. And he is blaming Pete for losing it or using it. At which point, Harry pipes up and claims that he spilt some. Oh, he spilt some of that later, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure his accent changes three times, doesn't it? Which Pete's very suspicious about anyway. You know, Harry's accent changes throughout the the movie. We'll see for obvious reasons later. Uh, I mean, this this excuse placate Archie who goes away and then secretly Harry comes over and says, You owe me one. You you owe me one, yeah. Claiming, I suppose, that he's taken the, the bullet for him. 
Now, Pete feels entangled and entrapped by somebody he still assumes is a killer. You know, I, I guess if you were to really believe that, it would be extremely frustrating. Now, Paul, you claim that the only thing they were doing today was the pub, but that's not true. Oh, his friends had laid Shoot. on another activity. Yeah. So they all pile into the Range Rover, and this time, as George is driving along, Archie is hanging out the passenger window. And they see a rabbit in the field at the side, and he gets the shotgun that they've got in the car, and he shoots at the rabbit, deafening everybody. And they arrive at a grouse shoot that has been organised by Norman, the gameskeeper, and all of his local buddies. (laughs) Pete is a bit embarrassed, I think, because he's never shot anything before. Have you ever been shooting, Paul, of of this kind? You have. Clay. Clay. I've shot Clay. I've shot clay. Mostly. So you've shot live boides. Yeah. I speak to one of my students and he said, oh, you ain't never shot a rabbit, have you? He, oh. said, he said, when you shoot a rabbit, yeah, there's nothing left to eat, which is a complete lie. If you shoot it with a shotgun, you have to pick out the pellets, which used to be a problem back in the day when they were lead, but they're not lead anymore. What are they now? I don't know, actually. I've done a tiny bit of clay pigeon shooting. I've been like twice. I'm pretty good at the ones that are like the rabbit run things, the ones on the ground. Have you done any of that? No. They, they fire the clay pigeon thing, the disc. Oh, I know what you mean. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and on. it sort of skips along the ground and hops over little wow. branches and stuff, like a rabbit might. I was very good at that. But, I mean, on the whole, it's quite difficult to hit a damn thing, isn't it, with a, a shotgun? And, uh, I'm not really proud of this, but also, you know, I've been duck hunting and, and rat exterminating as a kid. Wow. Rats. They must be a devil t- to shoot. Quite easy, really, because often there's eight or nine of them. Right. Uh, ducks are interesting, a real skill, because you've got to lay the decoys on the water and then get down in your cover. Archie and George are sort of born to this, so they're obviously shooting grouse or whatever they are. More hens, I don't know what they are. Some kind of bird. Not sure what they were. Yeah. Not there's many partridges down there, are there? They're shooting them out of the air like nobody's business, aren't they? They're falling like, like rain. Mm-hmm. And Pete can't hit anything. Third thing. Give, he maybe scares one of one of them. Understandable, you know, it's because no one was helping him. That's the thing. When I did clay pigeon shooting, there was a guy there over my shoulder down the barrel, and telling me exactly how and where to aim at each at each skeet. He would say, "For this one, you want to imagine that it's got little dangling feet, and you're aiming at its feet, kind of thing, because <laughs> it's just the right amount of leading the target, isn't it?" And it's really complicated because. Some of the tar- some of those skeets are like falling, and some of them are rising, mm-hmm. and you can barely see it anyway. You've got a bit of wadding that comes out when the gun fires, but that doesn't go in the same direction either. I don't think. What kind of gun were you using? It was a double barrel side by side. Or twelve bore shotgun. Twelve bore, yeah, I guess so. I don't know how many bore it was. With the standard kind of cartridge that you slot in, yeah. But yeah, anyway, a very difficult skill to master. I had some sort of well, well-off Chinese friends once. Uh, so let's go fishing. And, and let's go hunting. You're going to uh, tell me that they threw grenades into a pond? <laughs> Much simpler. They just electrocuted all the entire lake, right? <laughs> it was like tonnage of fish just floated to the surface. So I was like, okay, that's fishing. Let me do fishing. He's like, yeah, we've got a hunting on the mountain. So he was a PLA army general, okay? And this was back in the day when there weren't many foreigners in China. He shouldn't have done this, but I went into his army camp and he said, oh, God, you've got to get you dressed up like an army, like a soldier. You've got to stay here for three or four days with us. And he said, you know, here he is, because they used to have an internal kind of like exchange currency token so, for so food. So not only, not only are you a foreigner illegally in a Chinese army camp, yeah. but you're impersonating. So he took Chinese. me, to, so it's like a little, it's like a little economy inside there. It's incredible. Okay. Uh, and he took me down to the stores they've got where you, you can keep yourself fine. They didn't really have any pants long enough for me. And it's like, it's like a whole kind of community in there. So there are soldiers who just farm, basically, for their self-sustaining that idea of the work unit. Everything should be provided by your workplace kind of thing. They say, so we're going to go, we're going to go shooting. There's what, we've heard this one wild boars up in the mountains, but a vast mountain owned by the army kind of thing. They said, we're going up there. I said, you know, we'll get these people to carry up the wine we're going to drink. We have the old-fashioned kind of jars of wine. And for it, like Chinese amphora-style wines, okay, which is a sweet, a sweet yellow. <laughs> I said, we'll get the guns as well, you know, and we'll get the children to carry them. And they had the local 
children that lived on the army enclave, nine and ten year olds, just carrying the guns. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And he said, it's not just wild boar. We've heard there's some escaped convicts we can shoot as well. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Are you looking forward to that, Paul? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I <laughs> um, And then we got to the top and there were wild boars. He said, okay, let's, we're going to start hunting now. I thought, are they going to pass us the guns? No, the, the, the hunting meant take the children, have the children shoot the boars. You didn't actually do the hunting yourself. Like the the children nine, shoot the nine year old urchins went hunting for us. So then we got stuck up the mountain with the wild boar that was cooked and we drank the wine and it was, yeah, interesting. I'll say they say that. I mean, hunting a wild boar sounds moderately dangerous. Yeah, but I don't I think they're particularly big, balls. the Asian wild boar. I mean. Oh, okay. Like a miniature pig kind of thing. <laughs> what kind of gun were they using then? That, the sorry, that, that, the whole point of my story is they were using machine guns, yeah. So in the same way they electrocuted fish, like uh, it's a bit easier than firing a shotgun. In some ways, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, you get several bites of the cherry, don't you? That's true. So Pete is a bit embarrassed by the fact that he never hits anything. And of course, I think George says there's a lot of work for Norman to put this this shoot on. Norman looks really disgruntled. I don't don't know why. I don't don't know why. Well, Pete's a bad shot, isn't he? He's right, not so aristocratic. That... He's failed. He hasn't passed the test. Of... But why does that matter to a gameskeeper? Are they so tall, oh, no. full luck tugging kind that, of? I think I, I, this idea that down what's it called? Downtown Abbey tries to explore in its kind of ITV way the idea of the the idyll of the strictures of a traditional agricultural class society in right. in a developing Britain. I mean, it's the best of both worlds, isn't it? Okay, you've got a, a country that's now rich, so you don't get farmhands starving at the age of seventeen anymore. But then you've got the stability that comes with the end of feudalism in terms of everybody's got a place, and it's disappointing for somebody who comes as a lord not to behave like a lord, truly, isn't it? That must be that must rock the world of people that want people to behave in a certain sort of way. There was a, a barman at my college uh, called Tom. Tom uh, the barman. Who was really annoyed that I didn't really know about horse racing, you know, because he used to call us gentlemen. And, you know, huh. for him, gentlemen behaved in a certain sort of way. And he, you know, didn't. So I, I guess we get back to ideas of noblesse oblige, aren't we? But I mean, the Do you no- think he would have been annoyed by the fact that I always drank special brew? <laughs> Not as much as in the fact that I drank a cassis, <laughs> sweet French blackcurrant liqueur. <laughs> Did you drink special brew? Yeah, that was my drink of choice in the college bar. <laughs> I've got a friend listen, Andrew, because over that time I really grew to like Ruddles. Okay, uh, <laughs> okay. I still love it. Uh, but Andrew's informed me the reason it tastes like it does is because the head brew is a drunkard, uh, allegedly, <laughs> and uh, and therefore it's a very bad beer. But I kind of like I kind of liked his watery welcome Ruddles. It, it was quite sort of unassuming. It was like the hard water version of, uh, of beers, basically. Anyway, Pete is feeling paranoid again that he's pissed Norman off once more, isn't he? Yeah, but he's, he's back. I mean, the, the, the group, the culture are pretty sure that Pete is no longer kind of one of them, isn't, aren't they? Like, he's not shooting uh, well. He's not going along with the japes and jests. Jape yeah. culture, you mentioned this in, in season one, Paul, I think. Yeah. Mate, as they're driving mate. back. I mean, they, they, I mean, the, the other thing is that they kind of hit on is it's the way that this socio-cultural modern British male they're quite like they talk quite close and like about things, but they kind of end it with mate at the end. It's quite aggressive. <laughs> mate, yeah, do you know mate? Like some of that's observed, but I'm not really sure how it feeds into it all. Really, hmm. as they're driving back in the Range Rover. He looks out of the window. Pete looks out of the window and he sees in the field that car, that filthy car. Yeah, that was vaguely scary. With the guy outside it saying something to the dog. So he knows now it can't possibly be Harry, just to confuse him even further. When they arrive back at the manor, I think Sonia arrives soon afterwards. Now, does Claire know that Pete plans to get engaged? Yes. Pete's annoyed by this. yeah. He doesn't quite know who's spilled it, but he assumes it's Harry that spilled the beans, yeah. 
But he does know that he told Harry that he mm. had a fling with Claire. And wow. he's now terribly paranoid that Harry is going to tell Sonia about it. And he's never revealed it to Sonia as far as he can, as far as he can remember. Sonia arrives and she's so sociable. She gets on really well with everybody. She becomes kind of like the life and soul of the party, doesn't she? And they're asking her to do impersonations and stuff. Now Harry starts to look rather isolated. Because actually, Harry gets shown up, actually, for being a bit of a dick. And Sonia's just a genuinely nice person. Except Harry's got one last trick up his sleeve, which he's got to put on a little review show, isn't he? Archie does the Jimmy Savile impersonation. Oh, yeah, Archie. And this is very much... I mean, I think they're just lifting from Harry Enfield straight off, aren't they? Really, in the nice but dimmery of it all. I was going to say, you mentioned two or three episodes ago, you mentioned the documentary that Mabin did in Japan. Yeah. About all of the J-pop... essay. Uh, Johnny and Associates. That's right, yeah. Johnny Kitagawa or something, I think his name That's is. right, yeah. It's very, uh, that, it's very similar to the sort of Jimmy Savile situation. It's Jimmy Savile, isn't it? Because, yeah. except that... In Japan, it seems they still defend Johnny. Even he's dead now, isn't he? But they still seem to revere him greatly. Mm. Whereas Jimmy Savile, people found him creepy. There was the Louis Theroux documentary where there was he was clearly yeah. a bit of a weirdo. But don't forget, Louis wasn't huge at the time, was he? Louis was very much in, no, in the backwaters of the BBC too. After he died, he became instantaneously a pariah, didn't he? But that doesn't seem to have happened to the, the Japanese Jimmy Savile guy, does it? No. Anyway, I, I watched quite a few of uh, Mabin's other documentaries, but you can look them all up on iPlayer quite easily. Uh, hmm. So, where are we? Oh, yeah. Pete confines in Archie, doesn't he? Because Archie's been hit, his confidence has been shot by everyone responding badly to his Jimmy Savile impersonation. That's uh, right. Particularly, kind of, Sonia pretends to find it really offensive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he has a moment of self-realisation, doesn't he? He says, am I a horrible toff? And <laughs> he also harks back to when he'd been trying to tell Pete about his business idea. What was his business idea? Was it-, it was to crowdfund uh, people's adventure holidays. Adventure holidays for rich people, that's right, yeah. yeah. So to bring, people, was- to bring people with the same kind of wishes for holidays together and to bulk buy the services and the travel and the accommodation together, yeah. That's it. Emboldened by Archie confiding in him that he finds Harry has got bad vibes around him, mm-hmm. Pete goes immediately off to his room where Harry's stuff is. He goes through it. He'll go through his bag. He finds a wizard's hat in there for some reason. He finds the note. Oh, that Pete. He looks through it. It says, his pills on it. He goes and finds on his, his, his pill pack. He looks at it, and one of the pills has been replaced with a different coloured pill. He immediately goes and confronts Harry and winds up stamping on all of the pills. Harry is saying, you know, but they're just chamomile and nettle calming pills. He's like, how do you know? You must have been in there. Does Archie come to to the rescue of Harry here and admit that he put the pill? He tampered with the pills. He does Only later. Later. Okay, sorry, later. He goes immediately now and tells Sonia that he had once had a fling with, with Claire because he doesn't want it coming from anybody else like <laughs> Harry. And he's convinced that Harry's now got it in for him. Sonia comforts him and tells him to go to bed. She says she'll go and tuck him in. And he wakes up after a bit of a nap and the party's still going on downstairs. And they're all dressed up in... I didn't catch what the gimmick was, like their favourite versions of him or something or what they were wearing when they first met him. I couldn't figure it oh, out. They were right. sort of dressed in costumes that they were wearing at one point, weren't they? I think. And then a big surprise happens. <laughs> like they're all sat down. Harry comes out with a polythene bag on his head. He shouts a guy out from behind a curtain who pretends to be Pete. But like he was actually one of the shooting party, wasn't he? One of the, one of the maybe the beaters or something. The beater, or... yeah. He was the beater in the shooting party. And a guy who clearly had a great deal of disdain for this guy who couldn't shoot a thing. <laughs> he roasts Pete very inexpertly, doesn't he? But mean-spiritedly. But, like, it's pretty horrible. Yeah. Like, it's not nice what they're saying. Oh, I'm Pete. I got no personality. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the nicest stuff. Uh, and he kind of builds a crescendo, doesn't it? Where 
They both sort of yapping and barking and howling at him. That's uh, right. That's right. Uh, and Fake Pete much. is asking the real Pete if he knows who Harry is. And Pete kind of breaks down and he <laughs> explains this terrible story from his youth. He says that when he was 15, him and this other guy would prank call this, this girl, this sort of mentally delayed girl down the road. They used to call her up and bark down the phone because they knew she was afraid of dogs, aren't we all now? But one day, they learnt that she'd suffocated herself with a plastic bag in her parents' bathroom. He, is, he now thinks that the picture of the girl on Harry's phone was that girl that they prank called. <laughs> Everybody's gobsmacked and flabbergasted. And they, they, I know, he, think, he thinks Harry is the brother of that girl. That's right, that's right. yeah. And then, you know, they have to reveal that the the whole thing was just to introduce Harry back into the group, that the barking had been in reference to Pete's tendency to dare his friends in days of yore to kiss a dog. Yeah, he says he's Plank. Don't you remember? He's Plank. You've known him since uni, the wizard guy from uni. And the girl on his phone, on Harry's phone, was just on Plank's phone now, uh, was just his newborn daughter. His daughter. Yeah. While Pete is trying to explain himself, he accidentally says he was worried about him telling Sonia he was going to propose. And obviously that spills the beans to Sonia. <laughs> and he mentions the pills, and that's when Archie says, actually, I put that one in there. Presumably. What, what, what does he say it was? Ecstasy? Not sure. Something. Something, rather. And George says that the old Pete would have loved this. I think they're assuming that he's changed. Yeah, because all he talks about is his charity work. He doesn't. He's mentioned his charity work about two or three times, but he has he's been quite very earnest, though, isn't he? He, he is, is quite earnest, but it has only been. But he has been self-centered, and he hasn't asked about other people. For example, he doesn't know that they don't work in finance; they actually work in corporate corporate law, and that they do charitable things and collect stuff together for local good causes, don't they? Anyway, Pete is so enraged at some point he chucks a vase at Harry's head, Plank's head. And the next scene, the final scene, actually, is Sonia and Pete driving back home. Pete is very remorseful and assuming that that's it, presumably. She's not going to marry him and she probably doesn't want to be his girlfriend anymore and stuff. And Sonia kind of plays it very deadpan for a while. And then she goes, no, I'm only joking with you, of course I'll marry you. And here's the big ending. The big ending is what? You know what, Pete? You You know your problem. Don't you? You oh. just can't take a fucking joke. <laughs> so are we... You know, what's the end here? We're supposed to think, well, actually, none of this was funny anyway. Are we, are we supposed to think that? That none of it was a joke? Tricky ending, isn't it? Because mm. on the one hand, Sonia is perhaps pointing out a flaw that he's not very good at taking a joke. Actually, the entire film, he's failed to take jokes. Or, like the final joke here, maybe her joke isn't a joke because it's just not funny. I mean, she is still going to marry him, unless she was joking. Yeah, so what's it all about? I think it's just a cringe fest. And I think think you're meant to be suckered into thinking like Pete. It does a clever thing, doesn't it? It makes you as paranoid as Pete for a bit. (sighs) For a bit. I don't know how long it carries you along in that idea. I kind of stopped waiting. At some point, I realised, ah, it's 35 minutes left. There's going to be no horror. In this movie, like, but did it not keep uh, you guessing? It did, did like, you not- you'd think there were moments where the horror could explode. Like after the little review show, you might expect it all to go haywire. Again, another stranger being invited into the house. Maybe Archie, the three of them, Harry, Archie, and the and the and the beta. Something collusional is going to happen in terms of horror. Uh, there are these mob flickers of hope that you might see some life being brought back into the movie, but it never really happened, did it? So, Paul, I get the feeling you're not that impressed with this film. I like some of it. I, I, well, I find it quite depressing, to be honest with you. I, I Did thought, you? Yeah. Did you like the acting? I thought the acting was quite strong. Uh-huh. But I, I find it quite depressing, just a confirmation of, I don't know, the close nature of a lot of British society. It just, I'm not saying it's a particularly accurate portrayal, but it, it did, there were echoes of... A realization of oh, I don't know really how oh. this tendency to countryfy ourselves when we make money, like, 
and I've just become bucolic and backward. It's like it's because you can hmm. afford to. I think in other countries, when you make money, you invest and make more of it and make more for other people, uh, rather than just retire to a shambolic pile and and become oh. depraved. What you're saying in America, rich don't guys don't buy a ranch. America too, maybe. Well, they'll dream of being cowboys, don't they? That's what they'll wind up doing. Uh, and I think it's the same here, isn't it? They all dream of being country chaps in a barber jacket telling Norman to put a hunt on. I mean, it's just... It was just depressing to watch, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Let's give it a score for acting then, Paul. I don't know. Good! I thought the acting was good. I, I, I did enjoy the acting. I'm going to give it an eight. Uh, I Harry, Georgina I thought... Campbell as Fig. Uh-huh. She's been in... Black Mirror and a couple of other things as well. Cool. I liked her. I liked Charlie Clive, who plays Sonia. I thought she was... I think that the whole film lifted quite a lot when Sonia arrives, actually. Mm-hmm. So this, this piece really is about Pete's isolation from his friends, from his peers. Because he has changed, clearly. He's not the same, he's not the same person, is he? But he's connected with Sonia. So when she arrives, it feels like a lifeline for him. So I think when it is depressing, it's because you're seeing Pete being isolated from you. It is depressing, you know. It's just I, I just found the whole thing a bit depressing. Uh, I thought Harry carried quite a lot of uh, the potential development Dennis. arc and the comedic kind of stuff. Although he's not not that funny. funny. That's not the actor's fault. So for me, an eight in total. I don't know if I said that already. I'll give it a seven for acting. Oh, really? Okay. So, plot, Paul. I, I liked some of the clever twists. I think if you're going to say horror, then we have to see Arch as being... I mean, it has to play out that we don't actually know if it's Harry or not. And there aren't any of those typical dead ends and false leads. That it it's could. only an emotional horror. But yeah. I think an emotional horror already has a name, and it's called a drama, isn't it? Yeah. It was but it's, thrilling at times, but it certainly wasn't the it, horror. Yeah, sure. So, to the, in the, to the extent that it wasn't the horror, I guess it didn't fulfil plot objectives. On, on the other hand, I did like the intricacy of some of the fine detail, some of the observational detail that made the plot work, some of which I can't quite bring to mind. But things like, like what? What's some small details? Like the switching of the the pills, that kind of thing. It was all quite well worked out. Yeah, the plot, again, I thought worked well. Seven for me. Don't know how you feel about it, Richard. Yeah, I think it is a seven. I think the acting might be better than I thought it was. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to up my acting to eight, hmm. thinking about it harder. Because a lot of this film... Which, by the way, is not filmed in a particularly intensified continuity way, is it? Well, sorry, to get back to your original thesis, was you were going to say, let's talk about some of those ideas about this movie. Yeah, but uh, this movie is not filmed particularly in that way, is it? No, it's not. There's quite a lot of shots with multiple characters in. And Hmm. it's filmed more, actually, like a TV show than than a movie. That might be why it gives that feel, then. Of a TV yeah, kind of show. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So we've done acting and we've done plot. Mm-hmm. Comedy. It's a comedy. Can we do comedy? Can yeah. we do horror? Yeah. Fear factor? We can do cringe factor. If you want to do comedy, though, it's just not that funny, is it? Okay, comedy and cringe. Okay, comedy and cringe. Mm-hmm. So comedy, it gets a four. Cringe, it gets an eight. Okay, I'm sorry, it wasn't that funny. Comedy 3, in terms of a log flume of cringe, it, it was cringy, but I didn't enjoy the cringe. <laughs> you didn't enjoy it. 7 overall, it's going to get a 5 for me. A 5? I'll give it a 6 overall. I think okay, it's slightly better. horror and thrill. I was, no, that's overall, Paul. You've done overall. Oh, oh I see. You're doing overall. Overall for, for the, the subsection, I'm sorry. God, so complicated. Horror and thrill. I mean, it's slightly thrilling. I'll give it a six, but it's not horrific. Except for the it was a little kids. bit thrilling towards the beginning, a little bit scary towards the beginning, and then it tapered off to kind of forget what it was doing. I think only a four from me. I'm sorry. 
considerable violence toward birds, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I wonder if anyone harmed in the making of this movie. Again, just be careful of putting your head above the parakeet. So, it's getting <laughs> close. I, I haven't had a failing movie for a long time. I have to say, before I reveal my score, it's getting close. But Richard, what did you score it? I'll give it a six. Oof, scraped by. Okay, I'm going to say it's scraped by, but I'm going to downmark it a little bit and say 5.5. Oh, no. Okay. Cool. So for next week then, mm-hmm. I'll give you a choice of I'll give you a choice of two. That's a surprise, isn't it? You didn't think you were going to get two, did you? I'm going to suggest Broker, which is another Korean film. Yeah, a Korean tip. That would be a good film. Versus In Fabric, which is not Korean. A haunting ghost story set mm-hmm. against the backdrop of a busy winter sales period in a department store. following the life of a cursed dress as it passes from person to person with devastating consequences. Not sure about that. Cursed dress, Paul. So, your choice. I'm going to go Korean. Broker. We're going broker. Mm. Not sure what it's about, but it might be fun. All right. What what did you call the Korean wave last week? You had a name for it. Might be wrong, but I think it's called the Hallyu. Hallyu wave. So, another Korean movie for next week's. Thank you for listening this week. Ciao for All your friends do not hate you. Just some of them. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. (laughs) Goodbye.